Please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 27. And I'm actually going to read a smaller portion uh, than it says in the worship guide. I'm going to read Matthew 27, verses 45 through 54. It's on page 992 if you're using the Pew Bible. Uh, We've seen already in this passage the portion I'm not reading, uh, Jesus' mock trial with its various pictures of substitution. Jesus dies so Barabbas can go free. The crowd cries out, let his innocent blood be on us and our children, little realizing that's precisely what they need, is Christ's innocent blood on them and their children. We see Jesus mocked, beaten, and crucified. We see various onlookers mocking Jesus. And yet again, with deep irony, they don't understand their own mocking. The crowds say he saved others, but he cannot save himself, and yet that's precisely the point. He could save himself, but he chose to save others. He came to save others and be punished in their place. The mocking and jeering of the crowd seems to have gone on from 9 in the morning until noon, and yet at that point, verse 45, where we're going to pick up, darkness covered the land, and the tone shifts. As darkness covers the land, the crowd seems to become less sure of themselves, less sure of what they are doing. Here now, the reading of God's word from Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45, and I will end at verse 54. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out loud with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will indeed come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook, and rocks were split, and tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And after his resurrection, coming out of their tombs, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, This was a son of God. This is God's word. Jesus' work on the cross is multifaceted. There's different aspects of it. And that's good news because our problems are like a kaleidoscope. Uh, They reflect back and forth and, and, and impact each other. What do I mean? Let's start with an obvious problem. Our own mortality. Uh, When you're young, uh, kids, you don't really have a sense of your own mortality, but it doesn't take long until you start to notice that your body is slowing down, that you don't recover from injuries as quickly as you used to. Uh, Perhaps you have near-death experiences, you know, an almost fatal car wreck, and you realize that your life is finite. As hard as it is to face our own mortality, uh, it's perhaps even harder to face the mortality of our parents. 
to watch our parents age and become ill, perhaps have dementia. And I know I'm not alone in worrying about these sorts of things because our society spends billions on anti-aging products and scientists spend whole careers trying to figure out how to extend human life. But that's not our only problem. We also don't know who God is. We've lost the sense of what it means to live life in God's presence, to live life with God, and so death is nothing more than a giant question mark. But how can we find out what God is like? What sort of experiment could we run? What kinds of observations can we make? And indeed, our very inability to know God points us to our third problem. We are separated from God. And so when we do imagine him, we imagine him as angry with the mess we've made with our world and our lives. We may at times think, yeah, there probably is a God, but we secretly wish he wasn't there so we didn't have to feel so guilty. That's our natural state. The heart of sin, uh, this is really the heart of sin. We say to the creator who gives us life and every good thing, shove off. I don't need you. I can do it on my own. In short, we forsake God. That's our natural state. Our problems are kaleidoscopic. They're compound. And yet in this passage, we see that Matthew shows us three ways that Jesus' work on the cross meets our deepest needs. As our king, Jesus defeats death. As a prophet, Jesus shows us God. As a priest, Jesus reconciles us to God. First, as a king, Jesus defeats death. As a king, Jesus defeats death. If you look at verse 50, it says, When Jesus cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. If you've ever sat with a dying person, you know right away this is somewhat unusual. A dying person's breath becomes labored and slow. It rattles and rasps. There's long pauses between breath, and you think perhaps they have passed, and then there's another labored breath. But that's not what we see here with Jesus. This is no exhausted man dying with a whimper. Jesus' enemies think they have gotten the best of him, that they've won the day, but they totally misunderstand what's going on. And that's why Luke tells us Jesus prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What we see here is not an exhausted man expiring, but a mighty king who faces down death itself. Paul calls death the last enemy. And here is our king who faces down death and with a battle cry throws himself upon death, our enemy. This cry from the cross is no whimper, but it's a cry like Henry V's, once more unto the breach. Friends, in the entire history of the world, every warrior, no matter how mighty, every king, no matter how great his empire, when he faces death, he loses. Except for here, on the cross, where our king faces death head on and three days later emerges from the tomb triumphant. So verse 50 concludes with this telling line, he yielded up his spirit. In all four of the gospel accounts, never do they say, and then he died. They say he gave up his spirit. He yielded 
his spirit. They all emphasize that Jesus willingly lays down his life. That's what Jesus told his disciples in John 10 he was going to do. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus' life is not taken from him. He gives up his life. He lays down his life. As king, he defeats death. And then do you see what happens in verses 52 and 53? It's one of the strangest little things. In, I mean, this, the whole resurrection and, and death, I mean, it's all strange, but it, it's a strange thing. Tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life, and they, after Jesus' own resurrection, they come out of the tombs, and they're wandering around Jerusalem. Okay, uh, it raises much more questions than it answers. How long had they been dead? How long did they stay alive? You know, what happened? Uh, what, you, you, there's lots of questions there. And yet the point Matthew is making is clear. Death is the last enemy, and now death has been defeated. Death is, has lost its hold on humanity. That's what we see here in Matthew. He's saying Jesus' death was literally earth-shaking. Rocks split, tombs open, saints who had fallen asleep were raised again. It's like an explosion of energy throughout the area. The resurrection of, of some saints on the day of Jesus' death is very mysterious, but the point is clear. Jesus' death has brought life. Although the last enemy death has not been fully destroyed, we still face death. Death has been defeated. Its power has been broken. Death's sting has been removed. Its teeth have been knocked out. And so now death is subdued and serves Jesus the King. And so all those who say, Jesus is my King, to die is but to sleep. To die is but to sleep. There's no perchance like in Shakespeare, but there's certainty. Those who die will rest with Christ as we await the resurrection of our bodies. What is our only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and in life and in death to my faithful Savior, to our King, Jesus Christ, who has defeated death. That deals with the problem of our mortality. But death is really a problem because we don't know the God of life. We're separated from God. We don't know what he's like. And so in this passage, we see another aspect of, of Jesus' work. As prophet, Jesus shows us God. As a prophet, Jesus shows us what God is like. Look at verse uh, 54, the end of the passage. When the centurion and the soldiers who were with him guarding Jesus saw the earth shake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely this is a son of God. Okay, the centurion, he's a professional soldier, uh, an officer in the Roman army who commanded a hundred men and would have overseen many crucifixions. These were hardened executioners, hardened soldiers. They knew their business. What's more, this centurion would have had in his pocket Roman coins that bore the stamp Caesar, the Son of God. Because in the Roman Empire, Son of God meant power. Son of God meant money. Son of God meant the full force of the Roman army at your command. 
That's what a son of God looked like in the Roman mind. So what did these soldiers see that made them think this man dying on the cross, dying the death of a rebel, was a son of God? Matthew says they saw the earth shake. Earthquakes are common in the Jerusalem area. It's right along the Great Rift Valley fault there, and so earthquakes are common. I doubt it would be that common for an earthquake to happen right at the moment when a crucified man breathed his last breath. But Matthew says they saw the earthquake and all that had happened. All that had happened. What had they seen? They had seen a man who did not respond when false charges were made against him. They saw a man who did not retaliate when the guards beat him and mocked him. They saw a man who did not reciprocate when the crowds around the cross mocked him. They saw a man who bore all indignity and violence. They saw a man who gave up his spirit, not with a whimper, but with a battle cry. They've seen a man who faces a shameful, horrifying, humiliating death with courage and resolve. And they say, surely this man is a son of God. As prophet, Jesus shows us God. Caesar claims to be God. He says, he says, this is what it's like. It's wealth, it's power, it's the fanciest chariots, the highest position in society, the ritziest parties, anything you can imagine. That's what it means to be a son of God. But on the cross, Jesus says, oh no, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. He enters the world and he takes the pain and suffering and solves it. This is not the distant, uncaring God of the philosophers. It's not the capricious, self-serving God of the Roman poets. This is the true God who sees all the brokenness and dysfunction and disintegration and pain and suffering and evil of our world, who sees things like school shootings and abuse, and he comes into the world not in power but in humility and frailty, in a body that's vulnerable to pain and even death, and he takes all that on himself. This is what God is like, who yields life to save others. On the cross, Jesus is showing us this is what God is like. And so we must time and again come to the cross and look at the cross to discipline our imaginations. Our tendency is to start thinking of God as an austere judge or to think of God as a sort of Santa Claus grandfather figure. And yet the cross shows us what the true God looks like. And so we come time and again. Any picture of God you have that doesn't fit with this isn't the real God. The real God is the God who so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him could have eternal life. We see a third aspect of Jesus' work in this passage, and it pulls these two together. The wages of sin are death. Death is frightening because we don't know God. We're shown God. We understand why we have the wages of sin, but now we need to be reconciled. And so as priest, Jesus reconciles us to God. That's the third aspect of his work we see. As priest, Jesus reconciles us to God. Now, kids taking notes, I know reconcile is not an everyday word that we use that often. Uh, so what does it mean? Reconciliation, uh, reconcile, means that Jesus not only took the punishment for our sin, so we're no longer guilty, but he restored our relationship with God. He made us friends with God. 
Uh, kids, maybe you've had this happen. You have someone you don't get along with at school, uh, like maybe an enemy on the playground. Uh, adults, maybe you have this happen at work too. It's not just kids, but I'll, 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 I'll pretend like it's just the kids for, for the sake of our dignity. But uh, you, you don't get along with this person. You keep doing things to get it back at each other. Now, you can imagine your teacher gets involved and makes you both stop calling names uh, and stop getting even with each other. Well, then you have peace, okay? Conflict is over. This is what you have in a sense in, in, in Korea, is there's uh, a ceasefire between North and South Korea. There's peace in that sense. But there's not yet reconciliation. You might have peace, you quit name calling, throwing pine cones, that kind of stuff, but it doesn't mean you're now friends with this other person, does it? Now reconcile means you have a third friend who comes in and gets you to know each other and to like each other so that now you become friends. That's reconciliation. A reunified Korean uh, peninsula, that would be reconciliation. Well, that's what we see on the cross. Jesus takes our punishment. Death is one of the punishments for sin, but he also makes a way for us to be friends with God again. Look at verses 45 and 46. We see Jesus taking the punishment. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land, and about the ninth hour, he cries out in this loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A land covered with darkness. Do you remember when Israel left Egypt? The ninth plague is darkness over the land, and it's the warning of God's judgment coming against Egypt. It's the warning of the 10th plague of the firstborn sons of the land dying. Now again, we have a picture of darkness over the land. It's a warning of God's judgment. And yet who dies? It's not the firstborn son of the Romans or the Pilate or the high priest. It's God's own son who dies to bear the judgment on our sin. He bears the consequences. And so he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world. It doesn't mean there's some kind of a, a tearing apart of God's own being. Jesus is still God, a member of the Trinity. Rather, what this is getting at is, is humans as a whole, we've said to God, shove off. We don't need you. We can do it on our own. In short, we've forsaken God. Now, if you told your parents, shove off, I don't need you anymore, get lost, okay, the natural consequence would be that you no longer enjoy your relationship with your parents. They're still legally your parents, they're still biologically your parents, but you can't say that sort of thing and then just show up at Christmas or for dinner and act like everything is fine. The natural consequence of forsaking your parents is that the relationship is broken. By God's grace, we've never had to bear the full brunt of our relationship with God being broken. We've never had to experience the full weight of God forsakenness, of a total loss of communion with God, of knowing his loving friendship. But that God forsakenness falls on Jesus on the cross. The experience of communion with God, of his friendly presence that Jesus has known his whole life, is now absent as he bears the full weight of sin. It's worse even than the physical pain. Here we see the ultimate punishment of sin, the loss of God's felt presence. But it's not just that Jesus took the penalty for sin. He did that, 
That's the first step. But do you see verse 51? At that moment when he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain was 70 feet, 75 feet high, thick fabric. The point of the temple is a symbol of God's presence in the very middle of his people. Okay, Jerusalem's like the center of God's people's land, and God says, I'm going to live in this temple. I'm going to be there in the middle of you. And yet the point of the curtain is, don't get too close or it will kill you. I'm a holy God, and you are not yet a holy people in the way that you need to be if you're going to enter my presence unmediated. God's so full of life and energy and goodness going into his presence like walking into a nuclear reactor. Only the priest went in through the curtain and only then to offer sacrifices and even then they tied a rope around his waist in case the holiness of God killed him. They could pull him back out again. But now the curtain is torn. There's access to God's presence for all God's people. If humans tore this curtain, they'd grab it at the bottom and rip it apart, and it would be torn bottom to top. But what does Matthew say? It was torn top to bottom. It's a supernatural act. God from heaven tearing it, saying, Now, now here is a way to be reconciled to me for friendship with God. God himself is saying that he accepts Jesus' perfect sacrifice, that he is now at peace with those who acknowledge God as king. He is reconciled to us. We forsook God he sought us out. He went into the far country to bring us home, and he welcomes us with open arms. At the cross, we see Jesus as king, defeating death. Jesus as a prophet shows us what God is really like. Jesus as a priest reconciles us to God. And so what can we say well, I think the best words we've already sung. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Yes, yes, it can be. Hallelujah, what a savior. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you. It's hard even to look straight at the cross for too long. To meditate on these passages, it, it, it's uncomfortable because we see the extremity of suffering and evil and pain. And yet we also see the greatness of your love. That you came to defeat death, to bring us life abundantly. That you came to show us what God is truly like that you came to bring us home to God who welcomes us with open arms. And so, Christ Jesus, we celebrate you, the great Savior. Lord, as we reflect on the cross this morning, as we reflect on your work, for those who have never been willing to say, Christ Jesus, be king of my life, may they see the beauty and the wonder of what you have done for us, and may they be overwhelmed. For those of us who have said, Christ be my king, and yet we've allowed pictures of God that are not disciplined by the cross to enter our minds, renew our minds, remind us what God is really like. Let us walk faithfully in the steps of our Savior. 
Lord, we live in the midst of a broken world, and yet we have the hope that you, the King of all things, has defeated death and one day will put all things right. And so as we look at the broken of our, brokenness of our world, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come and restore all things. Amen.